Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's like Zizek with The Matrix. I demand a third pill beyond the red and the blue. Both sides of this negotiation uh, have adopted symmetrical, hard, and unrealistic positions. Welcome to the third episode of the New Statesman's New Times podcast. I'm Serena Kaczynski, the digital editor of the New Statesman, and here with me today are Paul Mason, the writer, broadcaster, and author of Post Capitalism A Guide to Our Future and George Eaton, the New Statesman's political editor. Paul, as a former economics editor of Channel 4, how hard do you think the Brexit crisis is really going to bite? Well, it's not started yet. Um, We've had the kind of um, panic and jazz hands uh, phase, I think, in politics, both from Labour and now from the Conservatives. (laughs) But the economics of it don't begin until, first of all, the, the impact of a falling pound then kicks in through rising inflation. If you remember way back in the middle years of the Osborne Cameron administration, there was this big furore over falling real wages. Well, we're going to get falling real wages next year. And then let's see uh, how all these people answering questionnaires like, which do you care more about, migration or your living standards? Uh, let's see how they answer in a year's time. I think part of the problem, and George, you might have some thoughts on this, is the fact that you know politics and economics seem to be more closely wedded in the post-Brexit world than ever before. Almost, you've got one set of statements coming out from people who voted, you know, who were Remainers or affiliated with the Remain camp, and then you've got people on the other side saying that everyone's in denial. Philip Hammond is trying to beat a path to soft Brexit, but is being caught, you know, is being beaten down by the hard Brexiteers. It seems very hard to ascertain what the economic truth is. I mean, I, the arguments a lot of people make is essentially you've got competing economic and political objectives. So some say on the economic imperative is to stay in the single market. The political imperative is to control free movements and they clash. And this is why you've got now Labour remainers like Chukwu Amuno and Rachel Reeves, Stephen Kinnock saying we have to try and control free movement. But I think Paul makes a strong case in, in his piece for us that Labour has to put its eggs in the economy basket. You have to be in the right position to say when, if we do leave the single market, we warned about this turmoil, it's come to pass, and then they should be in a position to reap the rewards as the opposition. Paul, I mean, Labour's been quite divided, uh, that might be putting it softly, on immigration so far. Why was freedom of movement not one of John McDonnell's red lines that he laid out in his conference speech? Well, well, let's remember what, what the red lines are there to do. They're there to guide a Labour government or a Labour party in Parliament as to what it does if we ever get to that happy moment where the government reveals its Brexit proposal. 
So you, you imagine this, the government says we've been in a negotiation or even we're starting a negotiation and here's what we have either achieved or are looking for. Either thing, it, it, it applies to either situation. The red lines are there to say, we will vote this down unless these things are there. So, you know, absolutely, access to, I would prefer it even stronger, I would say membership of, single market, and then the rest flow from that, environmental protection. Uh, so the city retains its passporting arrangement. The, the red lines therefore encode a soft Brexit. Now, in that process, it's not us, uh, the left of the, Brit uh, of the British political spectrum, who will be asking for freedom of movement. It will be Europe imposing and demanding freedom of movement as the price for staying in. This is what happens in the soft Brexit negotiation. Now, I think it's not there for a reason. That, that, that in that negotiation, I would like, and I think that Macdonald Corbyn leadership is, by evidence of these red lines, prepared to see the biggest possible access, bearing in mind we have to have some variation to or temporary restriction on freedom of movement. A temporary restriction? I mean, what kind of shape would that take and, and how temporary would it be? Surely that's just adding to the, the sort of massive confusion that exists already. Well, well, look, I think it's not true that like northern working class people handed victory to the Brexiteers. But we know from the work done by the Resolution Foundation and others that really it was rugby clubs in South East England who handed victory to the Brexiteers. But it's true that if Labour could have won an argument with people in its heartlands, that there was a, an answer to their worries about migration within the European Union, we would have won and we lost. So I re read that as people resetting opposition at a lower, to, at a, to a lower form of commitment to full freedom of movement. Now, if in a year's time people are banging on the doors of late local Labour Party saying, we demand you restore freedom of movement, well, let's, let's hear them. I think that inside the European economic area, there is a possibility of an emergency break applied to freedom of movement, which I would set, personally, this is not McDonald's, this is not Corbyn, I would set quite high. I would say, look, let's, at the moment that migration from the E, for inward migration from, e, from the European Union exceeds maybe 200,000 compared to the 300,000, you know, um, let's, let, let's then filter it out a bit because we need loads of nurses from Greece and Spain and Portugal and we need loads of um, home care workers and we need our students to be part of the Israel Erasmus program. We need as much of it as possible. But I think the mistake made by the left before the, before the referendum was not to contemplate the idea of asking for a temporary restriction on this thing while we got our labour market prepared to, to resume full participation in it. George, you've been writing about the splits in the Labour Party, particularly over immigration. I mean, does that sound like a feasible policy that could be adopted and taken forward? I think so. I think actually, as the economic turmoil increases, I think there will be a growing consensus that that's where Labour needs to needs to focus, um, because a lot of um, the party's uh, continuing uh, vote is, is socially liberal, and the thing that they disliked the most under Ed Miliband that uh, annoyed them the most was that mug, now infamous mug on immigration. Oh, yes. And so the risk is that you alienate your socially liberal voters who, who could go to the Greens in Scotland, some have gone to the, the SNP, without necessarily winning, winning any socially conservative converts. 
I think that is I think that is going to emerge as the as the de facto position. Do you think Theresa May has in some ways oversimplified the referendum by rewriting it as a referendum on immigration? I mean, at least that's the stance her government appears to be taking mm. and pushing forward. Well, the, the surveys tell us it was a referendum over primarily sovereignty and then migration. So I think we have to take both seriously. But I think Theresa May has created a kind of regime of crisis that there is no way um, her, the hard Brexit uh, negotiating stand uh, will actually work. It will, you know, it will, it will take years in other words, it will not be achieved within the two years once you've triggered Article 50. It will probably break up the United Kingdom. And it, for us, presents the left, who I think we have to... It's like trench warfare. We've lost the first trench, which is the Euro, European Union. We retreat to the second trench, which is the European Economic Area, and we defend that. And it gives us, while defending that, a golden opportunity. Because we, which I include the SNP, after their conference uh, last week, saying, you know, we want membership of the EEA as part of an independent deal for Scotland, so that's them. Presumably that's also applied. It's the Greens. It's hopefully Labour, I hope, um, and maybe the Lib Dems, if we can convince them to fight for that. We should all get together and say to Brussels, our aim is to defy hard Brexit. Our aim is to stop hard Brexit, and the more Theresa May comes to Brussels negotiating with you for the hard Brexit, the more you can be sure that when that is put to Parliament, we will vote it down. I think, in other words, I want, through Parliament, to see the chaotic demise of the Theresa May administration. The Brexit shambles. I mean, you said hopefully Labour. Uh, why is Jeremy Corbyn in particular still vacillating on declaring himself fully in favour of retaining single market membership? George, Paul. So it's interesting. They talk about access. And interestingly, Theresa May talks about access as well. And they say we want tariff-free access. Well, that's sort of only the starting point. The single market is is a lot more complex than just tariff-free. It's the harmonisation of of regulations and uh, laws that that that's what's essential for for businesses to operate. But interestingly, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, one issue he has is over has been over state aid rules. So his his concern is that, for instance, uh, the EU doesn't allow you to support domestic industries such as steel in times of trouble to the extent that you you would want. But they've said now that's not a red line. So it's something that they would want raised in in the in the negotiating period. But um, they're not going to say we reject the single market if the EU doesn't move on on state aid. So that is a more a more pragmatic position. But they actually sound single market membership. We don't believe it makes sense to speak of that. We don't think it exists. And when I say, do you mean the Norwegian option then? But if you you know, if you're talking about membership, they have full access, but it's not clear whether they're in, in favour of that model yet. Like most people in Westminster, they're still working their way through this. I think that um, both sides of this negotiation, Theresa May's hard Brexit faction and now Donald Tusk, the European Council President, uh, have adopted symmetrical, hard and unrealistic positions. That is, Tusk says, you're either in or you're out. Uh, Theresa May and the hard Brexiteers and UKIP and, um, and, and its backers are all saying the same things. You're either in or you're out. Now the task of a negotiation is to, is to, is to drive a wedge between you're either in or you're out. And it could be full EEA membership or it could be a Swiss style deal or it could be, as Theresa May originally said, a unique deal. But the task of the negotiators is to split that off. I understand that 
The civil service advice to Theresa May is that even to get the WTO deal, that is hard Brexit, she's going to have to give freedom of movement to skilled labour. And this is why you're starting to see this in the Tory uh, uh, discussions about it. So, so, so it's, it's, it's BS to say there won't be freedom of movement. It's just who it's going to apply to. And I think we on the left have to have to fight for the possibility of a third outcome. It's like Zizek with the, you know, the Matrix. I demand a third pill beyond the red and the blue. I demand something that is quite like EEA membership and quite like freedom of movement, but satisfies enough people who oppose freedom of movement to say, we achieved something on your behalf, and above all, for labor, gives us the chance to drive into the labor market issues, like cheap labor, like agency work, and really reform them. And, and to answer your original question, Serena, um, the, Corbyn's not vacillating. The labor leadership is, unlike the Tories, the sum of many, many parts. You know, there are trade unions, there's the European socialist parties, uh, the European far left is the strongest voice saying to Labour, get out now. We don't want any dilution to the European acquis. You know, that's Syriza's position. You should leave now, Article 50 immediately. So Corbyn is, has to juggle many uh, interests. And one of them, of course, is these northern Labour MPs who are very exposed to the threat of UKIP, very concerned on behalf of their constituents about migration, and very unlikely to agree with the, your average southern liberal who says, well, migration doesn't affect people's living standards. You know, it, northern Labour MPs are surrounded by people who believe it does. Um. To move on to uh, Scotland, which you touch on very uh, articulately in your piece, and that you actually come forward and say what Labour should do on Scotland, which is possibly the most forthright view I've heard on that <laughs> so far. Um, and obviously Scotland has now, you know, Sturgeon's putting forward the draft bill for the second mm. referendum. How should Labour deal with Scotland? Because you say they should, uh, you know, embrace Devo Max and possibly even be pro the second independence referendum. But if they do that, they risk surrendering that position, the unionist position to the Tories, yeah. and that's already happening. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. I find myself as an English uh, person, one of the few people in British social democracy who's actually engaging with this. It's weird, outside Scotland. And what I would do, first of all, is plead to everybody in the political class who might be listening to this to get involved with the debate with Scot Scottish people about this. Now, I think... Um, I'm glad. I think, I think Sturgeon has done exactly what I thought she would do. Some of her own supporters were quite surprised. It's quite bold. So she said, uh, we'll have the referendum on a second independence referendum. But in the meantime, our aim is to stay inside the United Kingdom, stay inside the European economic area, and effectively be, to become uh, you know, a maximum autonomous zone within the United Kingdom. Now, what does this do? First of all, if you, go, if, uh, if you go online, you are surrounded by quote unquote cyber nats who at the first mention of Devo Max will froth at the mouth because this maximum devolution was something that Labour offered rhetorically and then voted down again and again when it was actually offered. And so there's huge distrust for Devo Max and yet what I think uh, Sturgeon has cleverly done is kind of owned a very maximal version of ultra devolution because she's offering it as a as a as a way to avoid um, independence and i think it, it is a real intervention into british politics in other words it's not rhetorical it's real she can stop certain things if she doesn't get it and she has also i think placed scottish labor in a real bind scottish labor 
is full of people who just don't like nationalism. And precisely as you say, they fear handing unionism to the Tories. Well, I think in this context, they have to be prepared to do that because the people I want to see in Scottish Labour are those radical masses who fought on the yes side, you know, the Rise campaign and the Scottish Greens, who are in some places neck and neck now with Labour. If you're worried about the SNP, worry also about the Scottish Greens. And I think that if we don't do this, it's not up to me. Scottish Labour, I think, is now more autonomous than it's ever been. Good. If it's not, if we don't do it, Scottish Labour is going to kill itself. You mentioned they might need a change of leadership, that Kezia may have to, may have to go in order for the party to adopt that position. Is that, is that realistic? I mean, she's quite a popular... Well, the, it, I mean, it seems to be settled but, um, until the May local council elections that there won't be a change of leadership. And the Labour has handed them a, a degree of autonomy. There is a big debate inside, inside Scottish Labour, and it's a really interesting one. I, think, I, don't, I don't think we should look at it cynically. It's, it's the kind of debate that Social Democrats have to have when they're facing you know, radicalism, nationalism, you know, and, 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 and a kind of crisis-wrapped regime. But, you know, I mean, broadly speaking, there's the, the kind of pro-Corbyn left in Scotland are quite unionist. Um, the, the, the people who would probably be in momentum in Scotland are in Rise, uh, which is a separate party, and therefore can't join Labour for two years, even if they wanted to, because they stood in the election against Labour, or the Scottish Greens, ditto. And then you've got this kind of group around Alex Rowley, who's the deputy leader, which is said to reflect the way Gordon Brown is now thinking, which is much more maximum devolution and much more autonomy for the Scottish party. Uh, so weirdly, the sort of, you know, neo-Blairite, Kezia Dugdale kind of uh, leadership has a unity of interest with the Corbynite left of Labour, and the unity of interest is keeping back any support for referendum 2-0 and any support for maximum home rule. Um, it, it's not, the reason it's not academic, of course, to people you know, in London or Lincoln or Bristol is that without Scotland, Labour can't ever govern what's left of the United Kingdom. <laughs> uh, George, what do you, just very quickly because we're running out of time, but what do you think, how should Labour articulate their position on mm. Scotland and, and in response to what Paul said? Well, that is precisely the split within, within the parties over the, the fatalists, if you like, who recognise that the new defining dividing line is in Scottish process is unionist and nationalist and Labour has to decide which, which side does it position itself on. There's the, the, the more nationalist route where you embrace the UMX, you're open to a second referendum, or do you continue to fight with the Conservatives for the title of the party of unionism? Some Labour MPs believe that Labour will only recover in Scotland when it looks capable of winning on a UK level again. So recovery in Scotland is conditional on, on recovery in England, because they think at that point, if Labour's ahead of the Tories in England, if it looks as if it could form a government at Westminster that could deliver for Scottish people there, then they'll come home to Labour. Um, so that's that's the, the debate that's going to be played out. Of course, one hypothesis was that Jeremy Corbyn would give Scottish Labour this, this early boost. I always thought that was far too optimistic, because clearly the problems... Uh, long predate Corbyn, and and simply electing a socialist leader is not going to not going to fix that overnight. So I always thought that was rather naive, although it suits Corbyn's opponents at Westminster to 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 beat him with that stick. Great, thank you both very much. You have been listening to the New Statesman's New Times Future of the Left special podcast. You can find more information about all our other New Statesman podcasts at www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.